Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Theology Without the Bullshit. Super excited again, as always, to be here with you. Uh, my name is Derek Malott, and with me is the fabulous uh, Reverend Dr. Paul Capitz. And we want to get started right away today because we're going to be covering St. Augustine, which is uh, probably more of a topic that, well, it's more than one episode can cover. So we're hoping to um, break this out maybe across two. But before we do that, we want to address a question that came in on Facebook this week. So as always, a constant reminder to submit those questions to us, and we'll be sure to address them as we move forward. So, Paul, go ahead and take this question that you that we received. Okay, uh, there's two questions here. The first one is, uh, what is or are the best books to learn details about the debates behind the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed? Actually, it's called the Chalcedonian Definition. Um, there's a a patristic scholar, a British patristic scholar named Morris Wiles, W-I-L-E-S, who in my judgment is the most insightful analyst of patristic theology. And so I would start with anything that he's written. You can also go to uh, volume one of Jaroslav Pelikan's History of Dogma. Um, let me see, what else might I be able to recommend you know, I'd start there. This question comes from my good friend Peter Solon in Minneapolis. I'd start there, Peter, and um, then we can talk some more if you want. If you get through those, uh, we can we can push you on to other things, okay? Um, then the other one is, I can understand if you want to hold off answering this next question until we get to modern theology, but when your students at the seminary asked you to clarify why you are a believer in neither Trinitarianism nor Unitarianism, how did you respond? How do you see Jesus saving people, uh, perhaps from death or from whatever saving might mean in modern days, uh, either individually or collectively, if Jesus is not somehow both fully divine and fully human. And then he says, perhaps I'm misunderstanding something. Well, no, Peter, you're not misunderstanding anything. It's a very good question. And it's uh, it's a complicated question because it, 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 there's no simple answer in terms of a few sentences that I can just give to you. Let me say, let me say, a few things, though, to at least let you know what direction I'm moving in. I think that in the ancient church, the Christological question was wrongly formulated. It was formulated as a question about how a person who lived 2,000 years ago could be both divine and human. And I don't see any reason why that's how the Christological question has to be formulated. So I don't accept the premise that I have to come down on either side of the debate between Athanasius or Arius. Um, I would say that the Christological question today needs to be formulated in the light of what we know after 200 years of modern historical critical study of the New Testament. And in the modern period, the major way of asking the Christological question has not been how can one person be both divine and human, 
but has been what has been the relationship between the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith, the Christ proclaimed by the church. Now, I don't want to say that I think that's how we should formulate the Christological question today either. My understanding of these matters starts with the work of Rudolf Bultmann in the 20th century, who, as you know, was the most important New Testament scholar of that century. And he pushed beyond both the classical understanding of Christology that was formulated in the patristic period in the Arian controversy with Athanasius and the modern way of posing the issue as being about the historical Jesus. All I can say at this point is that without, again, going into a lot of details that will get us completely off track tonight, is that I think there's another way of posing the Christological question. And if you want to go directly to the most important inspiration for me in thinking about this, I'd recommend Schubert Ogden's book, The Point of Christology, in which he lays out the point of view that I share. And he takes on both of these alternative points of view, the classical one from the patristic period and the modern one from the 19th century, uh, both of which uh, he uh, judges to be inadequate, as do I. So I'll just have to say that for now and and leave it uh, at that. And we'll we'll return to that at some other point. All right. Well, uh, that wasn't an easy question to answer. I think you um, were able to get through that relatively quickly, given how deep that could have been. So um, we want to start by uh, talking about St. Augustine, uh, who he was, why he was important in the history of the church, what are some of his views and contributions to uh, Christianity. And so, Paul, where does that, where does that story begin? Well, Derek, uh, Augustine is, uh, without a doubt, the most important figure in the church history of the West. And by West, I mean in Latin-speaking Christianity, the Western half of the Roman Empire that had its center at Rome. The people that we've been talking about up to this point have been Greek-speaking Christians living in the Eastern half of the Roman Empire, in Egypt, in Syria, and in uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And um, while their contributions to Christology and the doctrine of the Trinity have been equally fundamental for both Eastern Orthodox Christianity and Western Roman Catholic Christianity, when we're talking about Augustine, we're talking about a church father who has only been important in the West and has not been important in the East. So we're talking about the beginnings of a distinctively Western or Latin Christian tradition. And this has been influential not only for Catholics, but also for Protestants, since Protestants emerged initially out of Catholicism. And so we're talking about kind of a a new branch of a tree that goes off in one direction, a Western direction, and the East is unaffected by this. And so continues the traditions of Athanasius, the Cappadocians, and the Chalcedonian definition that we've been talking about in a more or less uninterrupted manner. 
Whereas Augustine is the beginning of a new start, at least for the West, and his influence is huge. He is without a doubt the most influential intellectual figure in Western European history for a thousand years. He was born in the year 354 and he died in the year 430. He died, he, 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 he was born and he died in Latin-speaking North Africa. I mean, so he was uh, in a colony of the Roman Empire. So that's the story that we have to begin telling tonight. Why? Who was this person and why was he so influential? Do you think it's... Um... Do you think it's a good place to start then with his um, five conversions? Or yeah, I think before that, that. Yeah, I think we need to talk about what what makes this person significant, among other things, is the fact that he lived such an interesting life and that he wrote an autobiography chronicling his development leading up to his conversion to Catholic Christianity, and. The, the fact that he wrote an autobiography is itself a monumental innovation in Western literature because his book, The Confessions, which is the title of his autobiography, is the first autobiography in Western literature. So he not only lived an interesting life, but he thought it was interesting for him to narrate the story of that life, which nobody before had ever thought worth doing. I and mean, no intellectual in the Greco-Roman world ever thought that telling the story of that person's life was intellectually important. So apart and, from his contributions, then theologically, we have a literary contribution here in the style in which he chose to write his confessions. Right. Augustine is the beginning of what some people speak of as the introspective conscience of the West. Augustine could be seen as a proto-existentialist because of his particular interest. He is an existential thinker in that the act of existing, of being a concrete human being, is the center of his philosophical and theological concerns. And he's looking for a style of writing that's going to enable him to address those kind of concerns. So so the fact that he wrote an autobiography and the fact that his philosophical and theological interests are focused on the existing subject in time and history are related issues. And, and again, the intellectual focus as well as the form, the literary form of the autobiography are complete novelties. And that's what gives the Western intellectual tradition its unique dynamism is because of the influence of Augustine. Sure. Okay. And so where does this story begin then? Let's okay. uh, let's pick up from there. Well, as I said, he was born in the year 354, which means he was born in the middle of the 4th century, the century in which Christianity is on the road to becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire. And Augustine grew up in a religiously divided household. His father was a pagan, a Roman pagan, and his mother was a Catholic Christian. And that 
fact of a divided religious household is very important to understanding him as a person because a great deal of his early life is driven by a conflict of loyalty between his father and his mother. So you could say that the conversion is the story of how he moved from being his father's son to his mother's son, because as a young man, Augustine rejected the religion of his mother, Catholic Christianity, as being superstitious and not worthy of the attention of a serious intellectual, which he aspired to be. And so, I mean, all of this is, we know from his own pen, from the way he narrates the story in the Confessions. But what we learn from him is that his father had great aspirations for his son's professional success. And the way to get your son a great education so that he would be a success in the world was to train him in rhetoric, oratory, because rhetoric is the way to learn how to speak eloquently and powerfully in public. Rhetoric was an important intellectual tradition in the ancient Greco-Roman world, and its competitor was philosophy. And so in order to understand something about what's going on with Augustine, you have to understand something of the tension between rhetoric and philosophy. Rhetoric is the art of speaking beautifully and persuasively with the aim of persuading a crowd. People who taught rhetoric would charge fees for their professional services, and they would teach all of their arsenal of skills that were necessary in order to know how to manipulate language so that people would do what you wanted them to do, so they would agree with what you wanted them to think. Now, the problem with rhetoric from an ethical point of view is that rhetoricians per se are not concerned with the truth of what they're teaching people to say. In other words, rhetoric can be put either to purposes of truth or of falsehood. So many of the greatest rhetoricians in history have been people who told lies, such as Adolf Hitler. Hitler was a great rhetorician. And there's this wonderful scene in that movie, The King's Speech, about the King of England who needs to be able to give a good speech and can't because he stutters, where he and his family are watching a newsreel of Hitler giving a speech, rousing his adoring followers. And his daughter asks the king, Daddy, what is he saying? And the king says, because he doesn't know German, he says, I don't know, but whatever he's saying, he's saying it very well. Mm -hmm. You see, rhetoric is designed to manipulate people by the effective use of words, pleasing, ingratiating words. And there's an entire tradition going back to Greek antiquity where people had studied all these moves and tricks of oratory and rhetoric. Now, philosophy is the competing intellectual tradition because philosophy, going back primarily to Socrates, 
is concerned with truth, with finding out the truth about human existence and the world for the purpose of being good and doing what is right. So there was great tension between the rhetoricians and the philosophers. Now, the point here is that if you're a philosopher, you can state what is true without stating it eloquently. You can be a good philosopher without being a good rhetorician or orator. Conversely, you can be a good rhetorician or orator without being a good philosopher, without being concerned with truth. Mm-hmm. Now, this conflict between rhetoric and philosophy in the Greco-Roman world was such that it led one of the great Roman rhetoricians and philosophers, Cicero, to make the comment that if you have to choose between philosophy and rhetoric, it's better to choose philosophy because that's choosing truth and goodness over mere beauty of speech. But better yet, Cicero said, use rhetoric to state the truth and to teach what is good so that the philosopher can avail himself of the rhetorical skills of oratory. You see what I mean? Yeah. In other words, what he's saying is better to be an uneloquent philosopher than an eloquent rhetorician who teaches falsehood, but why not be an eloquent philosopher who knows how to speak beautifully and uses those rhetorical skills to teach truth? Sure. So Augustine is trained in the rhetorical tradition because his father wants him to be a success in the world and make lots of money. The father isn't interested in the question of whether his son teaches people what is true or pursues the philosophical lifestyle. So Augustine follows this path set out for him by his father and becomes a very good orator. But along the way, he becomes converted to the philosophical lifestyle. And I use the word converted intentionally because in the ancient world, philosophy was not seen as some kind of arcane specialty like it is today, a a department at the University of Minnesota or something. Rather, it was seen as a lifestyle in which people made a counter-cultural turn away from the foolishness of the masses in order to pursue truth so that having found truth, you could live a life of virtue, which always has to be based on truth. So the Presbyterians have a slogan, truth is in order to goodness, which goes all the way back to this Greco-Roman philosophical tradition. You seek out what is true because It's only on the basis of what is true that it's possible to live a moral life. So truth is in order to goodness. You have to know what is true before you can live a good life. Mm -hmm. And so to become a philosopher in the ancient world was a conversion in which one turned one's whole life around and one even wore a distinctive kind of clothing like a nun's habit or a priest collar that would identify you with this movement in antiquity. And so at a very early stage of his adulthood, Augustine is converted to philosophy, to the quest for what is true, because he realizes that, you know, much of the pleasures with which he had 
satisfied himself hitherto were empty and ephemeral and they're fleeting and there's no lasting joy and happiness in, you know, say wine, woman and song you know, to, to use that uh, <laughs> phrase. Right. In other words, you know, he 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 woke up and he he asked himself, you know, what's it all about? Why are we here? What's the meaning of of life? Mm-hmm. And, see, and see, once he began taking those questions seriously, he's on the quest for truth of the philosopher so that he can find what existentialists today would call authentic human existence as opposed to its, you know, false options. Sure. So that's, that's the beginning of his quest. It's a philosopher's quest. And when he finally converts to Catholic Christianity, when he comes all the way back to his mother's religion— He's not going to seen, have seen himself as giving up the philosopher's quest. He's going to see himself as having found the goal of the philosopher's quest, you see. And, and so he's going to try all these other philosophical and religious alternatives, you know, to, to before he gets to Catholic Christianity and realizes that that's the truth for which he's been searching all along. So this starts out as... Uh you know, an individual whose father wants him to be a rhetorician or a rhetorist. Right. And eventually he chooses to, or converts rather, to philosophy as um, the path that he's going to um, find virtue, if to use your phrasing. Well, he's, he, has, he has to find the truth in order that he can then become a virtuous person. Gotcha. Okay, so it's in the pursuit of the truth that he can then be virtuous. Because we can only know what it means to be a good human being when we know what it means to be a human being. Right, okay. And so, you know, you describe him sort of realizing that the the pleasures that he's been enjoying are, are fleeting and not ultimately fulfilling. Right. Sort of you know, realizing after your college days that all the partying and drinking right, and right. all that stuff isn't as really meaningful as, as it was fun at that time. Right. And so... So after St. Cloud State, you go to United Seminary. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, don't think the partying stopped after I went to St. Cloud State. Might have carried on into United Theological I, Seminary. I, I, uh, so, I just know that you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, you... I think for a lot of people, it's a distraction, right? It's uh, We try to avoid confronting the realities of existence because they're terrifying, at least in my case. Right. And so it was nice to be distracted by things that gave me an escape from confronting um, what it means to, to question what it means to be authentic and how to live authentically, to use existentialist terms. And so that's why I've always found August, you know, I always say Augustine. Why do you say Augustine? Does it matter? Well, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's like potato, t- potato, tomato, tomato. It, it's, uh, you know, it's Augustinus in Latin. Um, I just grew up, you know, all my teachers just called him Augustine, but I've heard people call him Augustine. It, it doesn't really matter. It, we're talking about the same guy. Well, I think I'll say it correctly then. It's Augustine. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I've always found him to be a compelling figure in history, precisely for some of the reasons that you've gone over now. You know, the first individual to write uh, essentially a memoir, right, or autobiography. And uh, the the real dedication to struggling with tough questions and, and seeking answers and, and pursuing authenticity. So after philosophy... What's the next step? Where does he go from there? Okay, so after he converts, I should just say that 
when he becomes a philosopher, he doesn't cease to be a rhetorician. And uh, this is related to his subsequent choice of a literary genre to create a new literary genre in which to talk about his autobiography uh, because he's doing the same thing when he, when he makes the choice to create an autobiography as a new literary genre so they can narrate the story of his conversions and thus teach to others the truth of Christian faith that he himself has found. He's doing what a rhetorician does. He's trying to find the proper form in which to communicate an idea. And so he continues to be a teacher of rhetoric who is now also a philosopher. So, so don't think that he was first a rhetorician and then he became a philosopher and he's no longer concerned about that because a large part of his brilliance has to do with the fact that he was such a beautiful writer. In fact, I had a professor at Yale who said that he thought Augustine was the best writer in the entire Latin language. And he was referring to all of those great pagan authors, you know, in, in Latin who had preceded Augustine. I mean, so he was, I mean, that's high praise to say that you're the greatest writer. I mean, imagine somebody saying you're the greatest writer in the English language. You know, that's what he was saying about Augustine. So, I mean, the fact that Augustine could write so beautifully, you know, was a reflection of his rhetorical training. And, and he used that training, you know, whether in speech or in writing, to... Commu- you know, communicate what he believed were the philosophical truths that he had found in Catholic Christianity. So he did what Cicero recommended people do, be a philosopher who's also a skilled rhetorician. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why we remember his name today and have forgotten so many others. Right. I believe the next phase in this conversion is Manichaeanism, isn't it? That's correct. That's correct. Manichaeanism was a dualistic religion, like many religions in the Hellenistic world, that uh, was very similar to Gnosticism. In fact, I have a friend who just described it as refried Gnosticism. In other words, it's a it's a dualism that looks upon reality as constituted by two conflicting principles: spirit and matter. And, and spirit is good and matter is evil. We, we rehearsed this when we talked about Gnosticism. It's essentially the same religion, um, except that now it's taught under the guise of, of its leader, Mani, M-A-N-I. And this became a world religion in the ancient Greco-Roman world. And uh, Augustine was uh, captivated by this, because it had an answer to the problem of evil. Why is there suffering in the world? And you have to hand it to dualists. They, they really do have a good answer to this question, at least initially. And that's what Augustine found, is that later on, when he became disillusioned with the Manichees, you know, he came to believe that their answer was superficial, but that's because Augustine came to believe that life is more complex than the Manichaean analysis of it um, allowed for. And so, you know, he eventually becomes dissatisfied with Manichaeanism, but initially on the surface, if you're looking for a good rational explanation for why there's evil in the world and why we suffer, dualistic religions are, are, are compelling. Let me just rehearse again what the Gnostic Manichaean answer is. 
they say that we are we human beings are good spiritual beings or souls trapped in evil material bodies that are a part of this evil material world so it's being embodied that is the source of our suffering right so i mean you know i feel hunger uh because my body has these urges to be fed you know i feel uh, lustful because my body has these urges for sex you know i i feel angry uh, i feel envious i mean all of these things are about my body comparing itself with other bodies and what they have or you know whatnot and 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 yet the truth is from their perspective is that we are essentially good spirits who are being forced into uh, having these needs, suffering these things, um, enacting these vices because we are trapped in, in a prison uh, of this material body that links us to this material world. And so accordingly, redemption or salvation is conceived of as an escape from this evil material world. And so for a time, you know, this satisfies Augustine. But, I mean, he, he really was a sharp cookie, and he thought deeply about uh, what the Manichees were teaching and about his own experience. And he came up with a set of challenging questions that other people in his Manichaean group couldn't answer. And they assured him that even though they couldn't answer his questions, there was one Manichaean teacher who was so brilliant, a guy named Faustus, that when he came to town, he'd be able to answer all of Augustine's questions. And so Augustine eagerly awaits his arrival, but uh, lo and behold, when Faustus comes to town, um, Augustine is completely unimpressed with him and, and thinks he is really a superficial thinker. And, and so Augustine leaves the Manichaean faith and uh, is, is kind of wandering in limbo for a while because he, he initially had embraced a religion that he thought had all the answers, and then he finds himself disillusioned with it and, and walks away. So, so that's a bitter pill to swallow when, you, when you've uh, become an ardent devotee of a religion believing it has absolute truth, only then to feel betrayed by its leaders that you've been duped into uh, buying a, a, you know, a set of pat answers that, that don't hold up to scrutiny uh, against reason and experience. And so um, he eventually joins another philosophical movement um, called the academics and and scholars today call this movement academic skepticism the word academy was the name of plato's school of philosophy but uh skepticism in its academic form has moved a long way from the teachings of plato even though it, it's in a continuous historical line with the teachings of uh, plato in other words, it's centuries after Plato, and, and the tradition has undergone so many permutations that it bears little resemblance to what Plato actually taught. Remember, Plato's teacher was Socrates, and in, in the Platonic Dialogues, Plato depicts Socrates as being able to teach 
people to find the truth for themselves through the art of dialogue, this kind of philosophical conversation in which by posing questions correctly, uh, people are allowed to discover the true answers for themselves. So Plato had great faith that it was possible for human beings to find the truth and to live accordingly in a, in a life of virtue. But by the time the, uh, the skeptics roll around, which would have been, I guess, about eight centuries later, the, the, the heirs of Plato have become skeptical of the possibility of finding truth. And therefore, they've interpreted the dialogues of Socrates in such a way that they believe that Socrates wasn't leading people to truth through his conversational method, but rather he was leading people to the realization that there is no truth and that the best one can hope for is a form of learned ignorance, is you realize that you don't have the truth and nobody else does, and that that's a form of wisdom. Right? And is it, is, it, um, is it Augustine who realizes that's logically contradictory? Uh, yes. Uh, he, that, that will be how he becomes disillusioned with skepticism. Oh, okay. <laughs> He'll, after he becomes a skeptic, and think about that. I mean, it makes perfect sense to become a skeptic and, and to believe there is no truth after you've become disillusioned with a religion that promised you the absolute truth. Right. right? Sure, sure. So you go from one extreme to the other. All right. So so eventually Augustine um, begins to find problems with skepticism. And, and the problem that he finds is that Complete and thoroughgoing skepticism is ultimately self-refuting. Yep. And that is um, to, the, to claim that there is no truth is to, is to make a claim that you believe is true. It's in and of itself a truth claim. Right. It, it's in and of itself a truth claim. And as such, you've fallen into contradiction. Right. So, so, so. And I think this is an extremely important philosophical discovery on his part to, to claim that there is no truth. And this is this is interesting because, you know, a lot of postmodernist philosophers today sound very much as though this is what they're saying. There is no truth. There are only social constructions of reality or what have you. Or all of reality is subjective. Well, isn't something that, like that? Isn't you know, that an objective distinction? Well, I mean, something, I mean, again, you know, I could be wrong there. Actually. People, people are making all sorts of uh, claims. But um, the point is that the consistent denial of truth is itself self-contradictory. So once you begin to realize that, you, you begin to realize that there has to be some truth that we all presuppose, even in our denials. And um, that works Augustine out of the position of skepticism. And that leads to his next great discovery that is also another development of the Platonic school, only this is called um, Neoplatonism. Um, Neoplatonism was a mystical religious form of the Platonic philosophy developed by a man named Plotinus. And um, this is uh, an elaborate metaphysical understanding of reality, but it's the antithesis of dualism. This is, this is what you call philosophically a monism, whereas dualism says that reality is ultimately of two kinds that are incompatible and in conflict. 
Monism says that all reality is woven of a single cloth. And so in other words, there's a single source to everything that is. And the Neoplatonic philosophers called this the one. And they believe that all things emanate or process from the one. And they use the illustration or image of a fountain that's overflowing to describe how they conceive the relationship of the one from which all things flow and the many that flow from the one. So the one, the one and the many is the, 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 the problem here is, you know, what's the relationship between the one and the many. Mm-hmm. So as a as a fountain overflows, constantly gushes forth and spews out its, you know, its spraying, you know, uh, of water. So, too, that's how Neoplatonists conceive of everything in the world. Everything in the world is an emanation from the one. And matter is at the lowest end of the scale and intellectual and spiritual realities are at the highest end of the scale so matter is farthest away from the one whereas intellectual and spiritual realities are closest to the one but that doesn't mean that that matter is evil no this is where this is where the phrase uh essay qua essay bonum est right comes from so essay qua essay bonum est means that everything that is is good simply by virtue of existing and that's Another crucial philosophical insight that Augustine lands on, uh, though this time it comes from his experience with the Neoplatonists, and there's there's an important similarities um, between Catholic Christianity and Neoplatonism, and in fact. He is introduced to Catholic Christianity through one of its Neoplatonic interpreters, Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. Ambrose is a Neoplatonic rhetorician and philosopher who is a Catholic Christian. And uh, Augustine went to hear Ambrose preach initially just because someone told him that August, that Ambrose was a great rhetorician and he should go hear this guy to hear what a great speaker he is. So Augustine has no interest in what he's going to say. He just wants to hear how he's going to say it. Sure. But they, when he's listening to him, he's absolutely bowled over by the intellectual philosophical brilliance of, of Ambrose in interpreting the Bible through the lens of a Neoplatonic hermeneutic or method of interpretation. And this is the first time that Augustine begins to appreciate the possibility that maybe his mother's religion isn't so superstitious and barbaric after all. If 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 a towering intellectual of the stature of Ambrose can be a Catholic Christian, then maybe he can too. Right, right. And so that would be leading us into, I think, the next phase of uh, conversions here would be his, um, I believe it's his, is it his intellectual ascent to Christianity. It's through, it's through encountering the Neoplatonic interpretation of, of Catholic Christianity through 
Anselm that he is able to Ambrose. give his in, what did I say? Anselm? Not Anselm, Ambrose, right. <laughs> Ambrose, right. Sorry. Through Ambrose that Augustine is able to affirm the doctrines of Catholic Christianity. He, he, he comes to affirm that Catholicism teaches the philosophical truth he's been seeking all these years. But there's one more conversion that he has yet to undergo, and it's really of an emotional nature because he's he cannot allow himself to be baptized in his own mind. Right, and this is, I think, the my favorite chapter in this conversion okay. story. Sitting in the garden. Sitting in the garden. Augustine still feels that his heart is clinging to the things of this world. Um, the ambitions for professional success, um, his sexual passions and desires, uh, you know, and, and he, he, he's sitting in the garden and he hears a child singing a song in Latin, uh, tole lege, tole lege, which means take and read, take and read. And on the table in front of him, there is a, a, a book of Paul's epistles from the New Testament. And Augustine hears the child say, take and read, take and read. So Augustine grabs the book in front of him and opens at random to a passage from Romans 13 and, and reads the first verse that his eyes light upon, in which Paul says, um, you know, put off the flesh and do not indulge its desires, but rather put on Jesus Christ. And this, reading this verse hits Augustine like a bolt from heaven, and he breaks down into tears and sobs, which is this cathartic moment in which he feels he's able finally to let go of all the attachments to the world that have prevented him from being baptized. But that's his final conversion. It's the emotional conversion to Catholic Christianity. And he quickly then becomes a priest and a bishop and um, becomes one of the greatest leaders of the history of Western Christianity. Yeah, it's quite the story. And he has uh, many theological contributions that come about um, that we still have yet to cover. And I think for today's episode, I think it's nice to have a break between talking about his his life experience and his, his story of how he came to Christianity. So I think next week we should pick up with talking about um, what theological contributions he made in terms of uh, properly ordered love, improperly ordered love, etc. Um, right. Would you say that that's a I good think, idea? I think that's exactly where we should start. Right. Okay. Because those are the fruit of his Neoplatonic uh, thinking. I mean, he he's simultaneously embraced Neoplatonic philosophy and Catholic theology. They're they're virtually inseparable, though we can make a distinction. But his interpretation of Catholic Christianity through the Neoplatonic lens is extremely important, and it it's where he begins to reflect upon uh, the nature of love. And the, and the nature of disordered love in the human heart, which is for him the source of, of evil, unlike, and that's his answer to the Manichaeans, is that no, the problem is not with the body and with matter. The problem is with the, the soul and with will, the will, the human will. Uh, the problem is a spiritual problem, not a physical problem. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, I think uh, I think that's a great stopping point for us okay. here, Paul. So thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to send your questions on Facebook, and we look forward to uh, continuing the conversation with uh, Paul here next week regarding St. Augustine. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Derek. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll be